Welcome to Ad Exchanger Talks, the podcast devoted to examining the issues and trends in advertising and marketing technology that matter most to you. Is trust the missing piece in your marketing strategy? This episode is sponsored by OneTrust, the platform that empowers more than 10,000 businesses around the world to build stronger relationships with customers and enhance their compliance with global privacy requirements. I'm Allison Schiff, Managing Editor of Ad Exchanger, and welcome to the first Ad Exchanger Talks episode of 2022. I'm recording this before Christmas, and yet I already know that as you listen, I've managed to break all of my New Year resolutions. Speaking of New Year's resolutions, no doubt most marketers are resolving to finally rid themselves of their overdependence on third-party cookies this year and figure out ways to do more with the data they have. On this week's episode, I've got Michael Katz, CEO of MParticle, a customer data platform he co-founded in 2012 before the CDP category went kablooey with competitors. MParticle's reason for being hasn't changed, though, since the early days when it still called itself a mobile data automation platform, and that is to serve as a data layer that goes beyond web technologies. As Mike puts it later in the episode, when he started the company, he was anticipating a world beyond pixels and cookies that would require a more API-led approach, and that's a bet that's really panned out. But before we dive into the conversation, I've got to do a quick plug for Ad Exchanger's upcoming industry preview event on January 25th in New York City. Industry preview focuses on what to expect in the year ahead for the data-driven digital media and marketing technology ecosystem. It's a one-day conference for senior executives in marketing and media. Visit adexchanger.com slash upcoming events to learn more and request your invitation. Hey, Mike. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Good morning. So first off, uh, I, I really want to know how you know Nas. I know he's an investor in MParticle. I've seen him speak at your events, but where did yeah. you guys meet? Uh, it's kind of a wild story, actually. So I was on my way to Cannes um, 2013 with my brother, Andrew, and on our way, uh, we got we got bumped up to, to business class or whatever and saw Nas and, you know, I'm a huge hip hop fan from, you know, basically sixth grade on. And so um, we're obviously going to do business and we have a bunch of meetings and I kind of become visibly distracted and my brother's still talking to me, talking about our schedule and making sure like we have everything lined up. And I'm like, okay, but that's, that's Nas right there. He's like, yeah, anyway. So like, and I'm, I say, okay, like this is, this is kind of a big deal. This is pretty cool. So like, he gives me like the 10 seconds to kind of pull my shit together. And, um, you know, next thing you know, like, we're on the plane. We have a stopover in in Paris. We get off, and as we're getting off, they stop him, and they say, "Mr. Katz," and he looks at them like, "Do I look like a Mr. Katz?" <laughs> and so I start laughing. I'm like, "That's uh, you're probably looking for me and my brother Andrew." And um, they go, "All right, the the three of you are coming." come with us. And I'm like, I don't really know what's about to happen, but I'm with my brother and I'm about to and be you're with, with Nas. Nas. Yeah. <laughs> so. so I'm like, I don't know which direction this is going, but it's going to be uh, this is going to be a story. 
And, um, you know, they bring us like, bring us down on the, on the tarmac. And I think like he had some sort of like special VIP service and they probably just like kind of lumped us in with, with him. And they brought us into a car so we didn't have to navigate around Charles de Gaulle. And then we get to like, um, the, the air France, like lounge or whatever, but in the car, it's really just the three of us. And so I introduced myself and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm Nas. Like, I, I know, I know who you are, blah, blah, blah. So (laughs) we just kind of talked and hit it off and, um, exchanged information and, um, hung out a little bit during the week. And then I think it was probably like a month after can where I saw that he had invested in a buddy of mine's company, uh, Ryan Dennehy, actually, um, mm-hmm. his, his last company, not, not electric. And, um, I was like, Oh, I didn't even realize that, that he did investing. So I hit him up. I was like, Hey, would you want to find out more about what me and my brother are, are up to? And this is like super early days of, of M particle. Um, and he's like, yeah, you know, I told my business partner, a guy named Anthony Saleh, who's now one of my, um, very good friends. And, um, it's like, it connected us and that was, that was it. And, uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to spend a bunch of time with him over the past number of years. And, you know, he's, uh, I'm a little bit biased, great, um, probably greatest rapper of all time, but even better human being, which is, um, far more important. Indeed. Well, what what did sixth grade Michael Katz listen to when you were just becoming a hip hop fan? You can embarrass yourself or maybe you were so cool that you liked really good stuff. Yeah. Anything and everything. I mean, you know, hardcore stuff too, crazy stuff. Like, you know, uh, I think NWA was, was out. So I'm trying to think sixth grade, I was about 12 years old. That was like 1990. Um, maybe 91. And so it was like, yeah, NWA, two live crew, just like the craziest, the craziest uh, rap that like, you know, a a middle-class kid from the, from the suburbs of of Boston should have never been listening to, but, but I did and I loved it. And something spoke to me and I've been a huge hip hop fan ever since. So long before M-Particle, there was InterClick, um, which got lumped in with ad networks. Um, I think, you know, 2005, uh, was that it, right? And yeah. so that really makes you a, an ad tech OG. I mean, you took that company public in 2009 and then Yahoo acquired it uh, in 2011 for $270 million because I guess at the time it ostensibly wanted to do more with data. Um, and I don't know mm-hmm. if this is a fair characterization, but like as an observer, it sort of looks, it looks like Yahoo swallowed interclick whole and then like just didn't like do anything with it. I mean, the leadership was in chaos, it was Yahoo. Um, and we don't we don't have to go into like the whole drama of the thing, but I'm just curious, like what do you think of Yahoo's weird full circle, like from the Verizon acquisitions and then the rebrands and like remember oath, you know, to the Apollo sale. And now it's just called Yahoo again. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing how everything ends up kind of coming full circle. And it it feels like, you know, the pendulum just kind of swings back and forth, but I would I would challenge that characterization and say that um, there is progress, right? So it's not just this kind of like back and forth pendulum. Like it's kind of more of like this like 3D kind of helix. I I would say that Yahoo now is probably in the best and most stable state that it's been in in a very long time. And you kind of touched on it 
I mean, we got there, was this, late 2011. And, um, I mean, we were there the year that there were, like, five CEOs. So, like, we, in a... Uh, yeah, no joke. <laughs> I mean, like, no, no, no exaggeration whatsoever. Like, we, we came into an organization that, that had been that had built a pretty good reputation as, as being somewhat dysfunctional. And we got there like right at the peak. Um, so needless to say, uh, the, the promise of the opportunity and like the deal thesis never, never materialized. Um, but it was a, I mean, look, it was a great learning experience nonetheless. And did it necessarily play out the way that I would have um, liked or anticipated? No, but it got me, here it got me starting M Particle, and you know you have to be grateful for everything, right? The ups, the downs, the expected, the unexpected. Um, I think it made me a, a, a better person, better entrepreneur. Definitely lit a fire to start M Particle, and again, here here we are. No, totally. I mean, we're just a bundle of our experiences. Scars are good. Um, yeah. They. Yeah. I mean, if someone asks you, what's, what's that from? You know, it's from when I fell off my bike. It's from when I sold Yahoo. It's, you know, whatever it is. Um, Builds so, character. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, at a certain point, it would be nice to just be on the ascendancy. But, <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 the goal, I think, the goal in life is never for everything just to be easy. It's to become masterful so that things get easier, right? Um I think for, for me, at least like in my, in my experience, the toughest times in, in life or work, those are the times of the greatest amount of growth. Um, so like the, the forward progress never really comes from when times are easier, when everything is, is going well. Um, it's important to take stock during those moments and to, and to recognize them and, and, and to still look for the lessons learned. But I feel like the real progress is built when you're when you're under duress, when you're under fire. And how do you how do you perform in those in those moments? Can you keep your composure? Are you able to learn from um, the the hard times and 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 move forward and um, incorporate those learnings to ultimately get better? That's that's kind of what it's all about. I. I like that. I would agree with that. And I guess let's talk about moving forward in the form of M Particle. So you yeah. founded that in, in 2012. So right after Yahoo, but actually right before um, the term customer data platform was coined. And I remember interviewing you back in, I think it was 2014 when I was super green and I barely knew anything about ad tech. Um, I actually had to have my editor help me with the questions because, you know, I, I remember stuff is complex. Um, so you guys called yourselves a mobile data automation platform, I think, or possibly we bucketed you that way, but it's what you were going with. Um, so how did MParticle evolve from that to like a customer data platform classically? And I'll give you like 30 seconds for this one, because I feel like when people start talking about the bucket they're in, it, uh, it goes long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for us, the stuff that we're doing today is exactly the things that we set out to do back in 2012, 2013. Um, it was about providing uh, a data layer um, or uh, data management capabilities that went beyond web technologies. So anticipating a world beyond pixels and, and cookies and moving 
teams to a more durable, scalable approach that was um, that was API led, and part of it was because in the world of of mobile and more specifically mobile apps, there are no pixels and cookies, so everything had to be API centric, and so the um, the adoption of customer data platforms as a moniker was just an easy way for us to become identified with this emerging opportunity. But the core of what we've been doing, the reason we started this company, the job that we are ultimately hired to do by our customers really hasn't changed. Like what has changed is an up-leveling in how we talk about it, how we talk about the opportunity, um, the, the articulation of, of everything that we do. And now we have, what, eight years or so um, with uh, operating history where we have the, the, the benefit of, of hindsight to say, oh, yeah, of course the world played out the, the way that we thought it would. But we had to make a number of bets that were very much non-obvious at the time. And so I think with, with anything, um, there, was a, there was a risk-reward ratio, right? Um, we knew that we had to make a bunch of bets. And if the bets played out the way that we felt they could, we could build a, a big, big company. And, and we were by and large right on pretty much every one. Um, but if one had been off, if things had played out a different way, I don't know if we would be here today. So, you know, a lot of it's a lot of it's luck. I mean, a lot of it is luck, but a lot of it is strategy for sure. But um, I've often felt this way about entrepreneurs and why I'll never be one. You know, I have this feeling like if I was successful with one company, I would like retire. But there's this entrepreneurial spirit where, you know, you try one thing, it works or it doesn't, and then you keep trying. So, I mean, if MParticle hadn't worked, I feel like you would have uh, tried another thing, most likely. Yeah, I, so... I used to think that um, you get to like some level of success and then it's like, all right, I'm, I'm out and you close the door. And it's, it's not that because I think that there's so much personal satisfaction gained from the pursuit. And so I think what it really becomes about is um, a tolerance, like your tolerance to deal with like bullshit just goes to zero. So you get to, you know, you don't, you don't retire, like you don't do nothing. You just don't do anything that like you don't want to do. Right. And so I think that that's like, I, I see it with a bunch of um, friends that have been wildly successful and kind of all walks of business and, and life. They don't stop because I feel like once you stop to like the, the, the instruments that you build, the muscles that, that you create in business can atrophy and the, and, and the tools become dull. And um, again, like if, if you think of the pursuit as happiness and you've been able to eliminate the things that you don't want, why wouldn't you keep doing what you're doing if you, if you truly love it? I mean, I came here to talk about CDPs and I'm getting life advice. So this is, <laughs> this is good. <laughs> Um, it's all interconnected. <laughs> I just had Corey Munkbach, uh, the COO of Blueconic, on the podcast in December. And she said that she found that marketers are a lot more educated today about the benefits of a CDP than they were, say, in you know, 2015, 2016, which makes sense. Um, at that point, people were still sort of scratching their head, wondering how a CDP was different from a DMP. 
Are you experiencing yeah. the same, like in the RFP process and in your conversations with brands? Are they asking better questions? Are they coming to you with like real needs as opposed to just, I think I need a CDP for some reason? Um, yeah, well, so if, if you remember, I think it was, I forget if it was 2017, it may have been 2018 at um, the Ad Exchanger industry event what's the, what's the one to kick off the year that, that you uh, industry go? preview and it's coming in, up in yes. uh, in january 2022 january 25th thank you so much mike january yeah. 25th at the time center in new york city there's there's your plug um so in in 2018 i came out and i did uh i had a keynote and i basically said dmps are dead and i listed out all the reasons and i think i remember that, that actually yeah, it, was, it, was, it was a little bit controversial, um, but it was really well received and, and it's obviously aged extremely well. Um, to, go, to go back to your question, I would say that um, I, I think that that characterization is, is fair. I think that there's been a lot of progress. Um, there's, uh, there's been a lot of education in the space. So we went from early days of MParticle where it was... It was really just us, and then it became like us and segment, and then it was like us segment and like ninety other companies. And so we went from there being no RFIs and RFPs to um, a few to a bunch, but a bunch of those RFIs and RFPs were written all different ways. Some some folks were looking for a DMP, some folks were looking for a marketing automation platform. Um, some were actually looking for true CDP capabilities. And there was just like, there was a lot of noise, but the presence of noise was kind of a signal relative to there just being kind of empty space. Um, and what we've seen over the past few years is that um, there's a real bifurcation in the CDP space. And um, I would characterize it as CDPs that have historically been focused on providing infrastructure, so really um, centered around like the data pipes um, and, and data movement. The job of these types of CDPs, including MParticle, is to serve as infrastructure and ultimately get high quality data out of the system and downstream to the different tools and, and partners. And so much of what we focus on is like data quality, data governance, and connectivity, the things that underpin digital execution and digital strategies. Um, that's ultimately very different than like the application centric CDPs um, who focus probably much more so on, um, well, exclusively focus on marketer needs. And so their platforms are oriented around solving audience insights and, and customer segmentation challenges, which are a subset of the things that we do. But if you think about CDPs as um, tools for marketers that probably sit more at the application layer, customer data infrastructure is, um, is useful to the whole business, including marketers, but it goes beyond just like the audience segmentation stuff to solve um, an identity challenge, a data quality challenge, um, a data governance challenge, all of the things that, again, impede successful execution of digital strategies. What are some of the common misconceptions that about what a CDP does or doesn't do that 
still just continue to persist? I mean, okay, DMPs are dead, but uh, what mm-hmm. what else? I mean, a CDP is not a DMP. But. Yeah, well, I, I think that, um, I think that there's this perception that CDPs are just marketing tools. Um, and, and some actually are. So I, I don't know if that's like a mischaracterization. We obviously have a skewed and biased view of the world, just given the, the nature of the relationship that we have with, with our customers. Um, but it cuts much deeper than a single use case. It's about unifying all of that data from every source and system that they have. And the first thing that we usually do is help them create a data strategy. And part of that data strategy ultimately maps to what their business goals are, what their requirements may be, but then also has to take into account the variety of structures and formats and specifications that they have to ultimately unify. Because if data is kind of coming in from all these different places, you can probably assume that over the course of time, they've been integrated by different team members, maybe some internal, maybe some external people who are still there, maybe people who have moved on. And you have all of these, like, ultimately things that uh, amount to, like, data quality issues, which need to be solved first and foremost before you start getting into, like, customer journeys and audience insights and segmentation because the usefulness of those capabilities is only going to be as good as the data that is connected to them, right? So it's like, it's not always the fun stuff. It's not always like the cool and sexy stuff, um, but there's, uh, there's a ton of value that is either created or destroyed depending on how you can address um, data quality. And then the next level up, is is governance i think you know what we've seen certainly in in and throughout 2021 i feel like this was kind of the year of like digital privacy in in many ways um and so lots of changes um created ripple effects throughout throughout the ecosystem and if you can't adhere to you know it's not even just gdpr and ccpa right it's it's hipaa and 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 vipa and COPPA and you know, people talk about, at least here in, um, in the US, they talk about CCPA, but there's also um, regulations that have been passed in Colorado and Virginia, and there's yeah. four more states that are passing bills. So I think we reasonably believe over the course of the next decade that every state will probably have some sort of, of privacy bill that they've enacted. And so how do you deal uh, as a brand who's trying to create personalized experiences, how do you navigate 50 different um, uh, 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 privacy regimes all at once? It's, it's really tough, especially if, the, if that data is not being centralized through a unifying data layer. So we're going to take a break, but I, uh, I beg to differ. I think data governance and data quality is a sexy thing. I mean, it's, that's, that's a big like part that. of my beat. So, um, all right, yeah. we'll be back in a sec. Hello, I'm Sarah Sluice, Executive Editor of Ad Exchanger. I'm here with Ryan Carlin, who is Director of Product Management for our sponsor, OneTrust. Hi, Ryan. Hello, Sarah. It's great to be here with you today. Ryan, what are the main challenges your customers are facing today? 
It's a great question. As consumer expectations have changed, privacy regulations and the tech solutions we use every day have evolved to give people greater visibility and control over who has access to their data and how it's used. At the same time, there's still a demand for personalized advertising and experiences. Delivering on all these expectations has required investment in new tools and operational processes, and it's much easier said than done. But publishers and brands are finding competitive advantage in bringing privacy to the front of conversations and establishing trust with their customers. How can brands find that competitive advantage in this environment? When we think about these brand-consumer relationships, chief marketing officers, chief privacy officers, and chief information officers are now the stewards and gatekeepers that can make or break them. Instead of viewing privacy requirements as a burden or obligation, leading companies are seizing the opportunity to differentiate through transparency and building better engagement and loyalty by honoring consumer consent and preferences and how personal data is collected and used. The more customers trust you and see value in what you deliver using their data, the more data they'll entrust you with and the better your product and experience will become. How does OneTrust enable its clients to seize this opportunity? OneTrust has defined the privacy category and provides a platform for clients to automate and operationalize this transparency and trust. From the website for your local coffee shop to multinational companies with customers and users worldwide, our suite of tools make it easy to comply with privacy regulations and enable consumers to make informed choices at every touchpoint. So companies can stay ahead of customer needs, deliver the right experience at the right time, and do all of this while future-proofing their data programs against growing and evolving requirements. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Okay, and we're back. So let's let's make some predictions and do some prognostications because I just love the word prognostications. It's the best <laughs> word ever. Uh, so many vowels. So will there be more consolidation in the CDP space in 2022 and, and why? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think that consolidation can go one of two ways. I think CDPs could get acquired. Um, I think some CDPs could be the ones that are doing uh, mm-hmm. some of the acquiring, right? Um, I think it would. I think it would make logical sense for some of the marketing centric CDPs probably to be part of larger platforms because I think that they're. Their market opportunity is inherently somewhat restricted, um, and it's also a really crowded place. Uh, I, I think of the infrastructure opportunity as um, as as much bigger. So I know for for us, I mean, we just raised a 150 million dollar Series E, so we're we're planning on staying the course for for as long as possible. So um, I would I would bet that there probably will be some, but I, I don't know if there's going to be any massive deals. Do you think we'll see more brands acquiring ad tech and or CDPs? Because I feel like MasterCard is a really interesting example. I mean, they bought Session M, which was Mm -hmm. like a sort of CDP focused on customer loyalty. And that was in 2019. And now it's buying dynamic yield from McDonald's, which McDonald's had bought uh, to personalize the drive-through experience a few (coughs) years ago. So they're, they're, I don't know, they're building a stack, I guess. Uh, So that's just one example. But more generally, are brands going to be acquiring ad tech or, or building their own, like the, you know, Walmart's work with the trade desk, for example? Yeah, I think, I think we can absolutely expect to see that. Um, I, you know, I, I think you can look at like 
the reemergence of, of Critio and the way that they've been able to, to reinvent themselves as this um, ad platform for, for retailers, right? So you are seeing, I think we've long talked about like the convergence of like marketers becoming publishers, publishers becoming marketers, like that story is, is not all that new. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is whether it's Walmart, Instacart, um, you know, you look at the, the size and scale of, of Amazon's ad business at this point. I think, um, you know, certainly with um, Microsoft buying Xander, mm-hmm. like there's, a, there's a recognition that you can build a, a really big business around ads. And there's also an opportunity to reinvent maybe some of the, um, the old model. If, if you will, right? Um, I think that especially as new platforms emerge, um, you start you start incorporating um, connected TV, which obviously isn't really much of like a new platform anymore, but like VR, AR, those those kinds of things. The 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 early approach anytime there's a new platform is to borrow from like the legacy approach. It's kind of this like I don't know, skeuomorphic type approach um, where you kind of like try to retrofit or like um, uh, resize the the old thing on onto the new thing. And it's like, it always feels like a little bit clunky, but it just like, it helps kind of bridge the gap and people's mental models work that way. Like CDs or Betamax, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you see it a lot with, um, you see it a lot like in the, in, in the web three, in, in crypto world mm, now yeah. where people are like they're taking web two business ideas and business models which were probably never good on their own and they're trying to apply um blockchain technology to it and it's like that doesn't actually just put solve it on the, the blockchain the mike problem. just put it yeah. on the blockchain whatever well you, you you know you, you see it like rewind the clock maybe a couple of years ago with connected tv you would see like banners in your like connected tv apps and you're like that that is not it that is not the the right form factor for this and then there's this like settling in period um where you get to maybe some sort of like equilibrium point and then there's like innovation from from there hopefully and i think like we'll we'll definitely see that in this case as well we had um, a conference in October, Programmatic IO, and we had Dan Salmon, who's the managing director of BMO Capital Markets, speaking on stage. And he said something like, every consumer-facing company will become an advertising company, which I thought was a really interesting statement and proving to be true. I mean, Instacart has an ad business. I mean, Walmart's going for broke. The whole retail media uh, landscape in general, uh, MasterCard buying ad tech, it's just, it's everybody. I mean, it's a good business if you can do it right. Yeah, if 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 you can do it right, um, it represents a huge profit center opportunity. And what does it take to to do it right? I think the context obviously helps um, if you have a, a captive audience, and then if you have if you have data, right? If you can marry those um, intent signals or um, other bits of information that you know about your your customer base um, and provide them relevant offers and um, ad- adaptive experiences. I mean, this this stuff isn't new. I think it's more just becoming widely accepted to, to be able to do it because there, there obviously was a period of time where it's like, 
everybody hates ads. We can't do this. That'll, it'll break the customer experience. And then I think people kind of realize like, it actually doesn't really like, yeah, you can break the customer experience with, with ads, but if you do it right, it probably enhances the customer experience. Right. There's this, uh, it's kind of interesting dynamic where I feel like I, I can't remember who I was talking to. It might've been actually Alexis Ohanian from, from Reddit probably like five years ago. And he was talking about uh, making the ad experience suck less, which I thought was a funny characterization because it's kind of like trying to straddle that balance between monetizing with advertising just enough before you piss your audience off to the point that they churn. So just reaching that point right before that point, but not actually going over the edge. But it doesn't doesn't actually have to be that way. I mean, it can be additive. It doesn't just have to be about making as much money, much, as much money as you can before pissing off your audience at the point that they leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so I I fully agree. I, I think that's that's one of the things that the that the social platforms have done over the course of the past, I don't know, handful of years really well, which is to introduce new ad formats that are that are fun and playful and, and engaging or kind of like natively built into the into the user experience if they're if they're disruptive if they break your um your your path to value realization as a uh, as a user that's obviously not good and there was that period of time probably like in the in the heyday of like the ad network explosion and um, the height of like the DSP movement where it was just like banner after banner after banner, sometimes a pop-up banner after banner. And that like, that just kind of sucked because you would get, you would get to certain pages and they would load slow and there'd be like 16 ads and you'd get uh, like the ghostery window popped up with like a thousand different trackers. And it was like, I didn't even know there were that many ad set companies. For exactly, exactly, and I, and I'm still amazed. Um, but you know the 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 sheer kind of um, chaotic nature of it was inevitably going to be self-correcting, right? So like a lot of those companies have kind of um, thankfully gone a little bit by the wayside, and there has been a little bit of a consolidation of of power. Um, but going back to one of the things I had said earlier, you know you. Do see this centralization decentralization theme? So we've been in kind of a centralization um, period, and inevitably it's going to decentralize again. It's it's really only kind of a a matter of when, not if. And do you think just random question? But do you think Google's going to stick to its third party cookie deadline? Because the original plan was to deprecate third party cookies in Chrome by Q two of twenty twenty two, and now the deadline is extended until. 2023. And I know there are some people that think Google will just keep on kicking the can. Um, I, th- I mean, I thought that they were going to stick with it because uh, the, the reality of them deprecating cookies, like while incredibly disruptive to everybody who orbits around that ecosystem, actually provided them with a bit of a moat and a competitive advantage. Um, which is yeah, a problem people, too for them. I mean, they they have a balance to strike. For for sure, for sure. And look, they have a ton of really really smart people running that organization. Um, so whether they do or or don't is probably 
beyond me, but you know, you can, you can assume whatever move they're going to make is going to be extremely calculated, right? Like it's not going to be something that they, they obviously take lightly. So um, I could see them carrying forward with it, but um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe at some, maybe at some point um, we'll get, we'll get clarity on it, but I, I would, if, if you're building a business or pursuing an opportunity, betting on them, pushing it back, I would, I would probably call that move really risky. That's a nice way to characterize it. That's a bad move. Uh, but yeah. yeah. Oh, it so, can pay off, right? It's just, a, yeah. it's just a huge risk. There can be risk reward, but this is yeah. probably like building on quicksand. Um, so penultimate question and back to consolidation there, there was a ton of mobile M and a in 2021. So like iron source was on a tear digital turbine bought, uh, it was ad colony and fiber Zynga bought chart boost. Vungle has also been on a tear thanks to Blackstone. And there are just lots of others. So, I mean, what's motivating like all of that movement and do you think it'll keep on going in 2022? I mean, does it have anything to do with shoring up, in the face of you know what Apple has been doing in its ecosystem, or or what? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, and and I really like some of the moves that that App Lovin made throughout um, twenty. Of course, App Lovin got it. Yeah. yeah, thank you for bringing that. Um, yeah, yeah, for for sure. Um, what's motivating it? I, I would I would hope that it starts with customer value. Like if you're if you're not starting with customer value, I'd say that. The acquisitions are probably doomed from from the jump, um, but yeah, I think a lot of this was in response to a changing landscape that was dictated by the large platform owners and their stance on on privacy. Which is why I had said that I think twenty twenty one was really the year of of privacy because even even though it was about so much more. Um, that was ultimately the underpinnings that created that um, created that ripple effect, which ultimately kind of led to the the wave of consolidation. So, at the top of the podcast, you you said something like Yahoo now is in like the best and most stable state it's ever been in. So, I mean, like, what about you guys? Would you guys ever sell M Particle, and would you ever sell it to the new Yahoo? I mean, just <laughs> kidding. But. <laughs> Uh, you know, you, you learn to, uh, to, to never say never. Um, but I, like for us, I think we're, we're on a, um, we're on an incredible trajectory. We have an awesome team, amazing customers, great investors, um, so many tailwinds at our, at our back. Um, we're just not really thinking about that, but, you know, to, to not avoid the question, cause I hate when people completely dodge these types of questions. I don't think Yahoo is a natural acquirer of a data infrastructure company like MParticle. Um, that would almost be like saying, would, would Yahoo ever acquire someone like Kafka, for, for example, right? Or Confluent, right? Like it just, it would, it would never make sense in the, in the grand scheme of things. I think culturally um, the companies are, are extremely different. The, the, the DNA of the team that we have, like we're ultimately building a developer tools company, right? Like to try to fit that inside a, a, a great 
media organization, I feel like it would be, yeah, oil and water. Well, I hope that the year to come, 2022, although we record this in 2021, will be a year of success for Particle, but also for uh, the universe, finally. Wouldn't that be nice? So uh, Mm -hmm. thanks for being on the show, Mike. And um, I don't know, maybe we should check in in a year and see if your predictions came true. I would, I would love that. I don't know if I ever um, uh, have looked back at any of the predictions that, that I've made. Probably would be horrified by how wrong I was. We'll see. Um, but it's been awesome uh, getting to chat with you this morning. And happy holidays to, to you and everybody listening. This episode was sponsored by OneTrust. In today's evolving privacy landscape, it can be tough to stay one step ahead. That's why the OneTrust consent and preference management platform enhances consumer trust and automates privacy compliance. Use the most powerful, easy-to-use consent and preference management platform to capture, centralize, govern, and sync consent, preferences, and first-party data while keeping trust and transparency at the forefront of all consumer interactions. Get started today by visiting onetrust.com slash build trust to learn more and request a free demo.